Welcome to the Dance Centre podcast. I am your host, Claire French, and I'm joining you from the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, also known as Vancouver, Canada. I'll be talking to dancers, choreographers and other members of the dance world here on the West Coast to find out more about their creative work and practices and to discuss what it means to us to be dance professionals today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us here. I am joined by Margaret Grenier. It's my absolute pleasure and privilege to be joined by her today. Margaret Grenier is of Gitskan and Cree ancestry. She is the executive and artistic director for the dancers of Dam Mohammed. She has produced the Coastal Dance Festival since 2008. Margaret's multimedia choreographic works bridge Kitscan and Cree dance forms with current expressions. Her works have toured internationally and include Setting the Path in 2004 through to Minoan of 2019. Minoan premiered at the Moshkamo Festival National Arts Center in Ottawa in 2019 and in Mexico that same year. Margaret holds an MA from Simon Fraser University and a Bachelor of Science degree from McGill University. She was a sessional instructor for Simon Fraser and faculty at the BAMP Center. She's received the Reveal Award, the Walter Carson Prize for Excellence in the Performing Arts, and the 2022 Dance Studies Association Distinction in Dance Award. Margaret Grenier is currently an artist in residence with Ballet BC, and Dancers of Dam Lahamid will be presenting Spirit and Tradition at the end of March at the Dance Centre. Welcome, Margaret. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Great. I would very much like to start with setting up a context for your work and for your artistic values actually and I'd like to talk a little bit about indigenous cultures and how you fuse that information and also are, are driven by and very much value as you describe it like ancestral memory and being and entering into relation with those things I love the words that you choose to use in your artist statement I think for me, that gives a very clear context about the explorations that you are working in. But could you give our listeners a little bit more context, maybe first on your work and then maybe into a wider context of um, the importance and significance of doing this work for you? Well, for myself, it's very personal. I had the opportunity to grow up with song and dance and I was the first generation to do so after the lifting of the potlatch ban. So I have the experience of dance going back to my earliest memories and that really formed who I am as an Indigenous person. It connected me to uh, oral histories that go all the way back to the origin of Dam Lahamid, which is the original city for the Gixan. And it connected me to the family, community, all of the different aspects that are embodied in the practice, which includes um, a way of learning, a political system, a legal system. And so it's so much more than a creative process for me. It's something that shapes and relates all the different aspects of who I am. And a big incentive for me in this work, what compels me 
really is ensuring that all that foundation that I was able to access, uh, all the foundational knowledge that I was able to access as a young person is transferred to the next generation. So just doing my part to really hold that in a way that includes contemporary perspectives, contemporary interpretations, but really just to sustain and cultivate that for for the next generations. Wonderful, thank you. Could we go back just to when you mentioned that the uh, the potlatch ban and just give us a little bit more context on on this? I think it's an extremely important period of history and with obviously within your nation to uh, to just explain a little bit further about the the actual ban on potlatches and then the the lifting of the ban and that time period and i'm i'm also wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your late mother um, margaret harris and i was able to listen to a, a, a tiny bit of an interview with her as, as well uh, around this for a little bit of context for me and i think it's it's such a, an important time significance that I feel like you are really, you've really risen to continuing to maintain after the ban, what was there with before, <laughs> but also with the sense of a protective environment, which is another expression you use, which I think is really beautiful. And so I wonder if you could just maybe give us a little bit more context about the actual potlatch, what, what that is, and what the lifting of the ban allowed you to do and to celebrate. Thank you. The potlatch ban was specific to the West Coast, and it lasted from the 1880s up until 1952. I didn't realize it before, but uh, I have since learned that it was a federal law that had been forgotten, and that's why it was lifted. So the, the law essentially expired over time. But for the Indigenous communities on the West Coast, what it impacted for some, we, we call our potlatches. For some, we call our feasts. And they were where we practiced our, our songs and our, our dances. And the so the, the potlatch essentially encompassed our songs, our dances, our practices. And these are practices that had been passed down for generations. And we know that the stories go back thousands of years. The duration of the potlatch ban was close to 70 years. And so for my grandmother, it was almost her entire lifetime that it was illegal for song and dance, that uh, regalia was confiscated. And in our family, I know that some of the items are now in collections as far away as Leningrad. So after the ban was lifted, that was a time that my grandmother, Irene Harris, described as when our culture was asleep. And she used that term because it wasn't gone. It was just something that we didn't have life put into it with with physical practice and with gathering. And so in the 1960s, it began under the leadership of um, my parents, uh, Ken and Margaret Harris, to once again dance. And they also hosted a festival in which they invited communities from the surrounding area to uh, bring songs and dances together, um, to bring communities together. And so 
with this, it was at that time very much about revitalization of something that was so close to being lost. And from that time, I think that we've also come to realize that it really does come down to individuals in order for these practices to be sustained. My mother, Margaret Harris, was greatly influential in not just sustaining the dances, but teaching and and sharing within um, multiple communities uh, throughout the Northwest Coast. And because of the work of her and her generation, we really do have dance today. For some of us, we have the privilege that the knowledge was sustained throughout this time. And for some of our communities, songs and dances were completely lost because of the potlatch ban. But there's been so much work done to not only regain knowledge, but also to cultivate a new practice that's based on the histories and and the research that was done to to bring them back again. So wonderful. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. And and the weight of it, you know, the 70 years ban, it's just, it's unfathomable. So I am so delighted that you are able to find a way to bring, keep this alive or revitalize, as you said, and also find a way to make it part of contemporary expression and cultural expression. And I, I do know that your your work is quite interdisciplinary and I, and it's not just the song and dance component, is it? It's also in the in the costume, or maybe you don't like that word, but in the in the clothing, in the instruments, which are like objects um, also on stage, projection, many layers to that. But I think there's also an element of continuing tradition or continuing ancestral in the, uh, like, do you also make drums and do you also sew blankets and moccasins and things like that? Are you personally able to do all of those things? Is that something you also bring into your practice? Yes, it's the practice itself is very multidisciplinary. It brings together the visual arts. Um, it does bring together the creation of regalia, the creation of drums and of everything, the song composition. The And for our, our company, we also integrate a lot of visual design aspects in terms of multimedia use in order to support the, the narratives that we are conveying. And in part, that is the essence of it, is it is how to support the telling of a story. But I also think that a big part of it is not necessarily always working within, like I consider myself a dancer, but I don't always just work within dance. And I do work and create blankets and I do sew moccasins and I do create drums. And that was very much part of the way that my mother trained us because it's important that not only the the practice cultivates the creation of these items but it also cultivates the transfer of the knowledge and so for example my daughter Raven who is now a young adult her focus very much is in music and in song and in learning um, and looking to the archival knowledge is also um, learning from our practice. She's then developing that and really strengthening her own practice in the area of music and 
and sound design. So I think that it's it's multi-layered and we all find our unique places and strengths within it. But then at the same time, we're all learning and sharing in uh, an understanding that has a whole breadth that includes everything from visual to sound to to movement and and every aspect of it is is interwoven. And are all the members of Dancers of Dan Lahamed from the Gitsan Nation? We are a family-based yeah. uh, company. And so we do have family members that are not from the Gitsan Nation through marriage and so mm-hmm. forth. So we have influences in our family as well from the Squamish and the Kwakwakiwak. And then through my mother's marriage um, as well from the the Cree. She was uh, born and raised in northern Manitoba. So we have all of that as part of our family and our family practices. That's wonderful. So the founding of Dancers of Dam Mohammed and and it's it's how much it's broadened or how much it has uh, how much you have seen it perhaps grow or has it shifted? I don't think it's obviously not shifted in its in its values and its kind of raison d'être. But but it could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's quite a wonderful thing that you've taken on and continued. So I think you're the perfect person to talk about its uh, development. <laughs> well, the dancers of Dam Muhammad, it is an intergenerational practice, and I think that with each generation, new perspectives and and there are always a difference in terms of uh, the time and place that we we find ourselves with my parents' generation. It was such a, a huge artistic risk, really, even just to bring song and dance to performance. Uh, prior to the uh, potlatch ban, these practices were shared within our feast halls under the cultural and political structures that held them, who they were shared with and how they were shared were very much defined by those practices. So in order to be able to share them uh, on stage was a was a very big decision. And it, it was something that um, at the time, I think people would not necessarily have the foresight of what that would mean. But for my generation, I'm I'm so grateful that 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 decision was made because it became a practice that I had access to in a multitude of ways that I wouldn't have had if it had been maintained only within the the cultural settings of the the feast hall. So that's not the same place that for me that I experienced because um, there was already you know several decades of work that had been done before I uh, took over a leadership role. I think that for the practice today the main shift has been in terms of really sharing the work in terms of stories told through dance productions that include multimedia elements. And with this way of sharing work, I think that our company hasn't changed in terms of um, we're very much rooted within our our training and our practice. I wouldn't say that that is what has shifted or changed. I think that it's using these same practices to speak to our 
contemporary perspectives. For example, the last work that we created, Minowin, it means to clarify direction. So as we come back to these same teachings, as we come back to our ancestral knowledge, we are not only reinterpreting them with each generation, but we are being redefined by them. And through that, you know, we we are articulating our own healing and process as we move forward from our recent colonial past. And we are strengthening ourselves and our identities in a, in a very different context than my parents or my grandparents would have found themselves. So that's the work that we do today. And that's what we offer when we create a dance production, whether it be a production like Minowin, which is um, very, uh, you know, it's a very large scale work, or um, with the work uh, Spirit and Tradition, which is uh, deeply rooted in our intergenerational practice. And we have our young people as well, very much engaged in that piece. All of it is really to sort of reflect where we are today. So one of the things I think in in speaking about your contemporaries is your international, not necessarily focus, but the opportunities that you have created for dancers of Damlohamu to have an international presence and also with Coastal Dance Festival to invite those people to your land. So could you talk a little bit about that relation and how that works in how you are sharing perhaps your own legacies and ancestry internationally now? The Dastras of Dad Muhammad have had um, a, a number of opportunities um, over the past uh, 20 years, I would say now, where we are making connections with the broader community of Indigenous artists. Uh, we've done so in part through our own ability to, to travel. We've connected to communities in New Zealand and Australia and South America, and most recently in the Nordic area as well with the Sami people. And I think that what has really brought us to to work in a way where, where we are sort of going and traveling in this way is because there's so much to gain from making connections with other Indigenous communities in particular, uh, but also in terms of just the ability to share our work in a with a broader audience. I think the story of the revitalization of our dance practices, the strength and diversity of our Indigenous uh, communities and our arts is something that needs to be shared nationally, it needs to be shared internationally, just to really, you know, show people the singularity, the the strength of all of our, you know, there are so many nations within Turtle Island and and all with unique languages and 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 cultural practices. So I think that's important that we share in that way. But we've also had the opportunity because we we host the Coastal Dance Festival, which has began in 2008 in partnership with the Museum of Anthropology and now in partnership with the Anvil Centre. We've had the opportunity to host artists, not just throughout the Northwest Coast, but also different parts of Turtle Island and, and internationally as well. And it really is a 
a festival community. It's not a festival that's about showcasing new works. It's a festival that's about uh, strengthening who we are in our Indigenous voices as artists, strengthening our community and, and being inspired through each other's works. There are so many stories of resiliency, of, you know, of sovereignty, of, of just the, the beauty of the, the intergenerational transfer of knowledge. And I think that when we gather in a, in a space like the Coastal Dance Festival, it really does help us to, as artists, to find ourselves, to clarify who we are and our, our vision and our work, but also just, you know, just to be held by one another and what, what everyone is sharing. And I think that that translates as well when we have the opportunity to travel to other festivals with similar focuses or, or you know, to broaden that beyond the Indigenous community and to really access venues that were not necessarily open to the type of work that we do even only several years ago. Yeah, I think that is is so inspiring, as you say, that there's a there's almost like a an expanded way of being able to be in these spaces that have for a long time within my, you know, communities and worlds been conventionally treated. And and so expectations are come with even maybe how one creates work or how one expects to engage with work. And I think what is so inspiring about this is that there are other ways to engage and other ways to uh, actually share that become much more about inspiring, much more about being able to share why the work is being created, not necessarily what the work is that has been created, although that is obviously such a large part. So thank you. Do you see a growing interest in Indigenous arts and culture in Canada and beyond? Do you do you see it? Is it hard for you to see because you are like such a, a leader, such a leading figure in in that happening in Canada? I certainly have experienced a shift within Canada in spaces being open to Indigenous dance and practice, and I think it's you know it, it coincides with a desire to understand. It's not just about presenting work in front of different audiences. It's not just about being more inclusive in programming. It's really about being open to a shift in understanding, to engage in conversations that are sometimes difficult, that, you know, that have their challenges. And, and it's not a path of, you know, where it's a, it's something that I think where we you know, as we learn, then we more things are revealed that that require work and <laughs> require patience in terms of moving forward. But it's certainly for for myself um, is something that I have felt, I would say, um, more so within the past several years than than I have seen for some time throughout my practice. And I think that the the young people that I see today who are coming forward as emerging artists are really in a place that, you know, it, it just wasn't there several years ago, where there are not only opportunities to engage and to share Indigenous practice, but to really transform what that even means. 
mm-hmm. and to find ways to innovate within to innovate within traditions, to innovate within contemporary practices, um, and to and to bring different practices together. So I'm really I'm really hopeful when I see what is what is taking place today. And would you would you say that there's a a style of would you does your dance have a name like within your own culture and traditions and communities? Do you, do you call it something? Uh, it's um, I think that. The dancers of Dan Muhammad are are unique in that we aren't working within a strictly traditional form. Yeah. So I think traditional mask dances are what we are like that is the foundation of the work that we do. But I think that it is still in a place where we're defining what contemporary practices mean within that. I don't think that's something that has sort of been settled in a way that that there is a genre or a <laughs> you know that there is something that is more expansive that can sort of be defined I think I think that's what is the challenge of our generation is that we are finding ourselves within these practices and and it takes time it, it takes mm. time to do that it takes time for you know ourselves to define ourselves within that but then also to you know the way in which we bridge understanding to what that means within audiences and with other communities I I think that is also what takes time yeah a part of my reason for asking that was just um that I understand also from your mother that how it's not powwow dance that you are that is part of the tradition that's not necessarily um what the traditions were originally of the Gitsan community. And I, I just wanted, I, w- I was drawn to that as an understanding uh, and a way of learning and how the masks masks also suggest something different to, to that. So thank you. Thank you for that. Could you maybe talk a little bit about, well, I'd love to know about your own artistic path. I think you have described it, but I, I'm sure for you sometimes being kind of the leader in the leadership role of both the Coastal Dance Festival and Dancers of Dam Lahamid, do you find that you have an individual personal practice or is that is that not fair to say because it's always going to include uh, other people? Or is, is your personal practice also a social practice? Or would you say that or can you make a distinction? I think it's very interwoven. I, I do think that my personal practice is very much a family practice, like not just within my 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 family, but also like dance family as well, and and how that family extends to the larger community, such as the coastal dance festival community, as well has become a dance family. And so I think that not only am I very influenced by those around me, but that you know that is a a place of reciprocity always for myself. At the same time, I do think that throughout the years of dancing I have had to find and define myself within the practice in terms of you know there there was a place in for me where where I did come to the realization that although what I was was deeply compelling to me was the ability to pass this forward to the next generation for myself it wasn't about uh, repeating what my parents had done. I, I couldn't use what they did as a model and simply follow it. I had to find myself within the practice in order to be able 
to fulfill my role, that would make it possible for the next generation to then follow. Because I think that if we don't hold that space, then I think that work is just passed forward to the next generation and they have more to do in order to make those connections for themselves. So even though I wouldn't say my work has ever really been, you know, limited to self, it's certainly something where I've had to clarify for myself what it means to be in the larger fabric of things. Your own Minoan process. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for that. That's beautiful. And I feel I feel like that's a space of wisdom, right, that is actually connected very much to ancestry and very much to a kind of security to understanding and wanting to be in relation to that history and, and wanting to do the work to uh, to like and, and I think with that becomes a what I like to call kind of an embodied wisdom at the same time as a wisdom that can be passed on as part of that tradition so we'll come back to a little bit of your path just with some of the things that you're doing but before we do that could you talk a bit about the challenges that you've faced and maybe challenges that you might still be facing I think this is going to be multifaceted and multi-layered there's the actual position of being able to bring in artists from other places and the costs associated with that and just the timing and the planning and all of those things there's also the uh, I wonder if there's a, a challenge around um, choosing what the company will present and what the company will share with a, a public and which works might um, tour and which and what the work is that's the practice that remains family within the family. And I wonder if those kinds of things are anything you'd like, if there's anything that you'd like to share or any other challenges. I may be way off track. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that one of the ways to articulate what the challenges are of today um, is something that my mother once told me, and that is you always represent more than yourself. And I think that is especially true as an Indigenous artist. I think that what we share with our work is understood by others as, as a way or a means of understanding Indigeneity itself and understanding values, understanding understanding or maybe not understanding but even having access to practices to language to a way of seeing the world that is you know unique to the to the perspective and the the uh, practice of the the artists themselves so it's important to me to always navigate carefully not only in terms of what is being cultivated within the practice itself in terms of ensuring that our training and the values and the, the what I would call the, um, you know, the medicine of the work is carefully cultivated uh, within ourselves and within the, the younger generations that are growing up in it, but also in terms of, you know, how that, guides what is shared, where it's being shared. Obviously, if we're taking work to new audiences, there's a caution there as well, because we make ourselves vulnerable in those places, which would be different than sharing within community settings where that understanding is already there. So there's always a lot to consider in terms of what work to bring and where to bring it and how a work is even 
designed to convey a message and who will be receiving that message. But at the same time, I think there's no one answer to any of those uh, things or the questions that may come up. And I think that sometimes when we find ourselves in places where we don't understand or when the challenges are, are bigger, that, you know, that's where we have opportunity for growth. We have opportunity for transformation. And I think that's what will ultimately care for <laughs> the younger people who are, who are coming into this because, you know, that's what we need to do in order to really support them and their vision for what the, the future will bring for them. Absolutely. I think the, I think, you know, thinking of it as cautionary as opposed to challenging, you know, the, those kinds of environments is just such a kind of considered way. Like it's almost like allowing, expecting it. And, and being ready to to learn from it and be ready to um, have that be part of the experience of what you're doing. I think it also suggests, you know, the significance and, and the values um, that are in the work. So I think this is a lovely place to kind of segue into a close a little bit, perhaps. But just to ask you what you are doing now and what's next. And there are three things that I'm particularly wanting our listeners to know about. And that is, of course, the performance on March 30th. For, at the Dance Centre, possibly your artist in residence at Ballet BC, if you're willing to talk a little, a tiny bit about that, and also what the future is for the Coastal Dance Festival at this point, and anything else you'd like to share. But I'd like to just kind of, you know, top it with what's now and what's next for you. <laughs> well, I think that the performance on March 30th at the Dance Centre is really, for me, it just it's part of this coming back to audiences that has been taking place since the pandemic. So it's been really wonderful. It was a very busy, busy fall, but it's been really wonderful just to have the ability again to connect to audiences, to share our work. We will be sharing uh, Spirit and Tradition, which means we will have younger dancers. It'll be a family practice that we're, we're bringing to the dance center. It's wonderful to have the young dancers just to be able to be part of those opportunities again to and to see how they've grown as well and even throughout the last few years that have been more difficult. We also are, as a company, we have been working towards developing a new work. It's not going to premiere till 2024, but it will tie into some of the residency work that, that we have been doing over this past season and will continue to do over the next season. We're creating a new work called Raven Mother, which is named that in reference to my mother, uh, Elder Margaret Harris, and the impact that she had throughout her her lifetime um, and the legacy that she has left our family. So I will be doing some work more individually in terms of the Ballet BC residency and also in connection to that residency doing uh, work with the, the dancers there in uh, deepening the conversations and dialogue around, you know, an, an understanding between the two dance forms. And then for the Coastal Dance Festival, we are going to be celebrating that again in person this year and at the beginning of March. So we'll have a lot happening in March this year. <laughs> um, and that 
is our second gathering since the pandemic. So um, it's exciting. I think that for not just for the dancers of Dam Lahamid, but for all of the artists in the various communities, we we really missed the opportunity to gather. Um, I really felt that last year when we had our festival, which was in April last year, because there was that last wave that came through in the spring. And so I think that, you know, we, we're just, it's just a time to really replenish ourselves, to to dance, to, to sing and to share. And so I think that's what I'm hopeful anyway for this spring, <laughs> that it becomes a time of just really, you know, being able to share work, to be able to, to sing and dance and to have people come and witness that and as a nice way to move forward from all that's happened over the last number of months. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been an, an inspiration and I look forward to all that you have to offer to us here. And the Coastal Dance Festival will be again at the Anvil Centre then in New Westminster. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And so the, there's the Dance Centre and the Anvil Centre. And we'll put links in the description of this podcast so people can find all of those dates and follow you that way and sign up to come to some, which I encourage everybody to do. Uh, thank you again for taking this time. It's been um, really a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I very much look forward to seeing your work on stage and wish you all and your family a wonderful, creative time. Yeah. And thank you, Margaret. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We would love for you to subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, as this will help other listeners find us and help us to grow our dance audience. We'll be back next month. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook at The Dance Centre, Twitter at Dance Centre and Instagram at The Dance Centre BC. And if you'd like to support our work, please consider making a donation. Just go to our website at thedancecentre.ca where you'll find extensive information about our upcoming programs and events. The music for the Dance Centre podcast was composed by James B. Maxwell. Always a pleasure to connect with you through dance. Until next time. Thank you.